We're in the series right now, as you know, called The Bible 101, talking about the most important passages, or some of at least, that we need to know as followers of Jesus that we need to see. This passage today in Jeremiah 31 may not be on the normal track of your devotional reading plan, or maybe you've never even spent time studying or focusing on it, but it is a great passage that points to Jesus being the fulfillment of the promise, this covenant relationship that he developed not only with Israel, but that he develops with us. And so I believe this is going to bring great encouragement to you today as we see God moving and working, how he fulfilled his promise, kept his promise with the Israelites and keeps his promise to us, how he fulfilled his purpose, how he worked and moved all through that, how he's still doing that in our lives, and how he restores his people, uh, those who run to him, surrender our lives to him, not just at the point of surrender, but how he continues to restore us, making us into the people that he desires us to be. So I believe this passage, this section of scripture will be very helpful for us today. Uh, But before we really dive in, uh, let's pray together and then we'll read it and we'll, we'll launch out. God, thank you for what you're doing in our church family. We thank you for those who are involved, our children's ministry, our student ministry, little kids ministry, preschool, for adults, for those who invest so much of their lives for those who are not a part of their biological families, but God, they are a part of our church family, constantly sowing in the gospel, constantly sowing in life. Thank you for their efforts and for their work. We thank you that you give us opportunities like the students had this week to go into minister, to share the gospel to be your hands and feet for those who went to the India uh, trip and were involved in doing the same. God, this week for Vacation Bible School uh, for us is big. It's important. There will be kids who cross through the doors, represent families who have no knowledge of you. So we pray that we would be faithful with those opportunities that you give us to share the gospel and your word. Help us there. And then God, specifically in these moments right now, as we look through this, amazing section of scripture. Help us to hear you. You would speak. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're just going to read the first four verses or so, seeing how God completes his purpose through Jesus, knowing that before we even begin, the name of Jesus is not referenced or mentioned in this. The Lord is, of course, speaking about God, but the fact that Jesus is the centralized figure of this, the point of it, Pointing to the New Testament, we'll see that throughout. So let's begin Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, making the old new. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So the reference here 
of God making this covenant relationship with Israel that took place, if you recall, between the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy. We see the Ten Commandments being given by God, that being delivered to the people, and he calling Israel to himself. You are my people. I am in this covenant relationship with you. As a kid, when I would read things about covenant, honestly, I didn't really understand a whole lot of it. But in fifth grade, I tried. I was in fifth grade during class, all sitting in our rows of chairs. We had the desks where you could put your things underneath, but there really wasn't a permanent place for us to do that. And somehow, I came up with one of those stick pins And I had that on my desk. Of course, we weren't supposed to have anything sharp. I think the same is true today. But I saw one of those stick pins, and a couple of my buddies and I were talking, Eric Bunning and Jim Hardig. And I said, guys, I think we need to do something. They said, what? I said, let's become blood brothers. Okay, students and children's don't ever do this. I said, children's. All right, so we took that pin, pricked our fingers, and then what did we do? We rubbed those fingers together. We were blood brothers. We would always be for each other. That's what we said. We'll never turn our backs on each other. We will always be in this relationship. Well, Eric, I haven't talked uh, to since the eighth grade. Uh, Jim, I still have some relationship with. So little, but known to those guys, I had another set of friends. Brent, Kevin, and Neil. Different class later that day. Hey, guys, guess what? Yeah. So we did it too. I got three more blood brothers right there. Later in the day after school was over, Jeff Earl. Hey, Jeff, you want to be blood brothers? Yeah. So I had six blood brothers in one day. Pretty amazing, really. About two days later in science class, a teacher began to talk about blood, and how you never want to mix blood with someone else and how you're going to develop all these things you know, that, are, that are bad for you, these viruses. So I started to sweat. I'm in big trouble. I just mixed blood with six guys. Soon after that, recess was called and dodgeball, and I forgot all about it, thank heavens. But I had these covenant relationships that I thought was covenant, not really understanding with these guys. God, of course, in this with Israel, went way beyond a blood brother covenant. Now, we know Jesus coming, dying on the cross, raising again the blood of Jesus, covering our sin when we surrender our lives to him. That is the covenant relationship he makes with us. And praise God, it wasn't just limited to Israel and to the Jews. If that were the case and Jesus would not have come and it would have been limited to that people group because I, as far as I know, don't have a long history of Jews in my background, a Jewish authentic relational line, Gentile, I would have no hope. But because Jesus came and did that and built this new covenant we see there, relationship with all who would surrender, I have hope. It's not just limited to a people group. Interesting enough, for those who are Jewish with whom I have a relationship, most of them focus on the first five books of the Old Testament. That's about the extent of it. And so they are still waiting for the Messiah to come. They base a lot of their lives on the Ten Commandments, which, just side note, and we won't do a raise of hands or anything, but if you had to call out the Ten Commandments or write those down, how many of those things would you nail at this point? Knowing that, maybe a little bit of background, four of those 
are in the vertical relationship between us and God and six with people. How many could you recall? There's a great organization called Way of the Master. Some of you may be familiar with it. Kirk Cameron, Ray Comfort, two guys who have a real passion for the lost. Well, as they take the video camera around and they interview individuals, where, they, where do they start? Talking to them, getting to know them a little bit, and then they, they launch in with the Ten Commandments. Because most people, when they're asked if they don't know Jesus, if they will go to heaven, will say something like this. Well, I'm a good person. I think so. I hope so. And then they begin to say, well, what do you mean by good? And they launch into this uh, presentation of what salvation really is and how all of us have wicked hearts and how none of us have a chance or hope without Christ. So the Ten Commandments, trying to live up to those, all of us have broken those It's interesting in Matthew 5 through 7 as well, how Jesus referenced in much of that Sermon on the Mount some of the Ten Commandments. He said in that, what, if you are an individual and you say you love God and you've never physically murdered someone, if you have anger towards someone, that's the same thing. It is the same as murder. You've done that to someone within your heart. Totally transitioning from strictly keeping to the law, which we see throughout Leviticus as well. Keeping the law was the primary concern. And the Israelites, if at times, which we see multiple times in the Old Testament, when they wandered away and they sinned and they became involved and had idols and were away from God, God told them when they did that, when they disobeyed, he would do what? He would remove his blessing. But when they obeyed the law, when they kept it, the law being written on their hearts, what would take place? God would bless them, came in different forms as he blessed Israel. But the times when they were away from him, we see the blessing of God removed. So Jesus coming, dying on the cross, giving us relationship with himself, we see the same thing in our own lives. We can't point the finger at Israel saying, I don't understand anything that you've done because we do the same thing. We allow sin into our lives. We compromise. And as we do that, and as our hearts harden or wander away from the Lord, we see what? We see the blessing of God not as readily available or not as present in our lives, even his very presence at points. Question for you in this. As you're walking through, as I'm walking through, when we sin, If someone were to ask us, if we continue to ignore it, continue to live in it, and ignore God's voice and ignore the truth, what happens? Well, I prayed, and I just don't seem to hear God's voice in my life anymore. Now, God doesn't stop talking to us in general just because of sin. And I'm not saying in those moments when we sin, God stops talking because what? The Holy Spirit flows through us and what does he do? He convicts us of sin. So he continues to talk to us. But we see repeatedly Old Testament and New Testament where people who repeatedly lived in sin, who walked away from the Lord or who lived in sin and hardness, at points their ears would become deaf. Same is true for those who hear the gospel. Repeatedly, there are times when, because of them rejecting God over and over and over again, where their ears become so deaf 
they can't hear. It doesn't mean we stop proclaiming because we do. And it doesn't mean that in any moment God couldn't intercede and show up and they would surrender their lives to him. He could. He's good in that way to us. But in our own lives, we can relate to Israel. When we harden the blessing, the voice, the presence of God is different in our lives. So Israel understood that. The Ten Commandments being a driving force. Jesus coming not as an abolishing of the Old Testament, but as the fulfiller of it. The old, the way of the law, the new. The new covenant we make with Jesus when we surrender our lives to him. The blood covenant we make with him. So not only does God fulfill his promises to us, fulfill his purpose in our lives, completing those things, he also shows us that he keeps our promise to him, his promise to us, the relationship that we have when we surrender our lives to him, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. So once we surrender our lives, given our hearts to him, we can't lose salvation. We can't say, I'm choosing to walk away from you. That's not how the relationship with God works. Why not? Because salvation is not based on us. It's based on him. And so the Bible tells us if we're authentically saved, we surrender our lives to him, he will remain. And that's important for us. Because every person in this room, namely the person in front of you, wrestles and struggles with sin constantly. And we're on our own actions and attitudes and lifestyles. We'd be hopeless. But the work and base is Jesus, not us. Praise God for that. Even those of us who are Gentiles, he makes the promise. He keeps it. Another passage. You can stay in Isaiah. I just want to read this for you. It's continuing with these verses. I want to bounce back for a moment too. But in verse 35 it says, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon, and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. And this is a very important point for us. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What are these verses telling us, and what is Colossians telling us? If God were to lift his hand and remove totally, what would happen? Our world would spin out of control. He keeps the sun in its right place. He keeps the moon and the stars in their right place. He keeps this on orbit like it's supposed to be. Were it not for him and he were to totally remove his presence, disintegration. But he's so good to us in the way he does that, oftentimes we don't even recognize him in creation. As a part of our daily lives, we don't realize were it not for him, things would not grow. Were it not for his presence, we would be as a planet out of control, if even still existing. He is good to us in that. Going back a little bit, it's interesting in verse 32, he mentions the term husband in this covenant relationship that he made with Israel. And of course, we know New Testament, we see Christ and the church, the relationship that is. So for those of you who are married or who one day will be married, what is that communicating to us and what's it telling us? 
the covenant relationship that we make with our spouse, that person, as people see us, believers and non-believers alike, should see a picture of Christ loving the church. It should be all over us in the way we communicate, in the way we function, in the way we, they see our families. Sacrifice. So why in the world, when we see a cup on the counter, do we leave it there and expect our spouse to pick it up? Well, I'm not doing laundry. That's your job. Vacuuming, yeah. Down the line, we are called to sacrifice our very lives for our spouse in the same way Christ died for us, which means that what the world says related to roles is bunk. We shouldn't follow it because they've got their own system of who should be doing what. Our system is who? Jesus. And the picture is sacrifice. So if that means either my, my wife's doing great or she's struggling, carpet needs to be vacuumed, I'm on it. There's food underneath the table. I'm sweeping it. I need to hug my wife even though she doesn't deserve it. She always does. <laughs> Out of nowhere, go up and kiss her on the head without expectation of anything beyond just to tell her I love her. Affirmation of our relationship. I should do it. If we were to walk through our neighborhoods together, and ask your neighbors, who know you? Tell me about their marriage and what you know. Would they be so blown away and overwhelmed because of the way you sacrifice for one another in your marriage? Or would they be like, man, they can't get along. They're always yelling in the yard. How's your area of sacrifice for your spouse? How are you loving them? Kids? I'm telling you, Seth and Ian, sacrificing for your families, doing things without being told, just because you love your parents and you care about them and it's a part of a family. The picture of Jesus in the church in our homes. People should see a difference. We also see in this passage that Jesus restores his people. Look at verse 38. We're going to reread this related to what we just studied uh, together. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The measuring line shall go out farther straight to the hill of Garib and shall turn to Goa. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or overthrown any more forever. Romans 9, 6. Not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. Our heritage, what God has promised, is not based on our ethnicity. It's based on the work of Jesus on the cross for us. And so this new covenant 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is a new creation, she's a new creation. Uh, they, are, they are new. The old is gone, the new has come. 
Anyways, in Christ, we receive that. We're made new in him. This covenant from old to new was made new in Jesus. So how is your covenant relationship with God? We've talked about spouses. We've talked about families. But how much does he penetrate your life and heart and mind moment by moment, day by day, week by week? How consistently or inconsistently do you sense his presence in your life, the leadership of the Holy Spirit? Do the people you come into contact with, followers of Jesus, see the very aroma of Christ in your life, and that's a drawing point for them to love him more? Do the lost see the aroma of Christ as you have conversation and relationship with them enough to a point that gives you the opportunity to share the gospel with them? This who is supposed to be the most important relationship in our lives, second if we're married as our spouse, are they seeing a picture of Christ in the church? Psalm 51, 10 through 12, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold with me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So here are questions. Number one, do you have a covenant relationship with Christ? Have you surrendered your life to him? If you have not, he is calling to you today. Calling to you to respond to him and to form and start this with him. To know we already know we're sinners, lost, separated, needing a savior, the only savior, Jesus, repenting, turning away from our sin, running into a relationship with him. Do you have that relationship? Two, does it make a difference in your life? This is a Sunday morning gig for you, and that's it? Or does your relationship with him extend beyond these doors when you leave? If so, in what ways? What is God doing in your life? And are you soft and pliable to him to change you? Third, and this is where the message is driving for, related to God restoring his people. Do you have something in your life, some sin, some area of hardness that you have resisted to yield? And over a period of time, you would have to say, to a degree, if not fully, your ears are deaf, your heart's hard, and you've grabbed this sin and you've kept it, and you don't want to yield it. Well, according to this passage, what we've looked at today, you need to be restored to God. The vertical relationship needs to get righted. So how do we do that? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, to confess he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sin and purify us, clean us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we confess it. But not only do we confess it, Luke 13, 3, unless you repent, you two will all perish. Repentance is a part of it. God, I don't want that way anymore. I'm running towards you and what you want for my life. So we confess, repent, and then 
we allow the forgiveness of God to pour over us because he still has a plan for our lives. And in the grace and mercy of God, we, re- we forgive ourselves. Sometimes that's the hardest. And we press on for who he's called us to be. Do you need to be restored to God today? In some way, is there sin that needs to be confessed, purged, to get it right? Last question. Horizontal relationship. Do you need to be restored to one, two, ten, a hundred people in your life? Maybe you're not the one that caused the disruption. Maybe you're not the one that brought about the conflict that took place, but you're feeling it. Maybe you are the one who broke a relationship with someone, intentionally, unintentionally. In the process of looking at Scripture, you've realized, maybe for the first time, maybe you've known it, this restoration thing needs to happen with people that I'm with family, friends, church family. You know as well as I do, life is messy. And so are relationships. Is there a relationship that needs to get righted that you need to initiate? If so, regardless of the other person's response, will you be faithful in what God is calling you to do? getting restored to the person and at least allowing a fresh flow of Christ to come back to your life instead of holding on to bitterness, anger, brokenness. If we yield these things to him, he promises us he will do it. He will restore us. He will do it. Will we? Let's pray together.